Before we get the show started, a number of you have asked about supporting what I do here at Monumental. I now have a mechanism on my website for that to occur. Just go to mattministry.com, mattministry.com, and click on the support page. You can make a one-time or recurring support gift. Your financial support provides me the help with resources and, more importantly, time to make more of what you hopefully enjoy. So go to mattministry.com and click support if you'd like to help. Your support is deeply appreciated. And with that, let's get it started. I realize I am taking some theological liberties here, so please forgive me if I offend your sensibilities. But I'm wondering if the conversation went something like this. One day, in the expanse of eternity, God said, Today is the day. All three persons of the Trinity were united in joy and anticipation. It will be glorious. We shall create man in our image, in our likeness. But first, we must make the place for our created ones to worship and live. It will be beautiful and good. But man will fail. Man will choose sin and bring about the seeds of his own destruction. Our enemy will think he has disrupted our bond and ruined what we have tried to build. Little does he know that his momentary interruption will begin the process of his ultimate demise. He shall only bruise the heel. Then, in the fullness of time, I will gladly go and die in their place. I shall do for them what they could never do for themselves. And three days later, we shall openly show our defeat of sin, death, and hell. Though he bruised the heel, we shall crush his head. It will be most triumphant. And because I live, they shall live also. And they shall be with the Lord forever. It shall be done. And then, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. no plan B with God. All of it, every moment, every orchestration, every movement, every facet 
was within the grasp and dominion of Almighty God. He is above all, through all, and in all. He is never caught off guard, nor sent reeling by the actions of others. At no point ever does the Holy One scratch his head and wonder what can be done to get through a problem. It is impossible to create or even imagine a scenario in which God is caught unawares. All of it, including the fall of man in the garden, the establishment of his covenant, the law, the kings, the prophets, the incarnation of Jesus, his crucifixion, resurrection, ascension, and someday his return are all plan A. It is, without a doubt, the most famous death in human history. And among all the emblems of the world, none is admired, glorified, and worshipped as the cross. Some say it was the biggest miscarriage of justice of all time. It's, it's important to understand the brutality of the day and, and, and what they did to this guy who did absolutely nothing. Jesus was innocent, not just of committing a, a, a crime punishable by death, but he was completely innocent. How is it that the death of a nondescript teacher from 2,000 years ago still affects the world today? You cannot write a more tragic story. It's impossible. He carried no political power. He held no official position within his own religion. Yet he managed to gain the attention of oppressed citizens, the outcast, the downtrodden, the forgotten, then religious officials, soldiers, and eventually the Roman Empire itself. Oh, the people love him. He's known as a healer and an exorcist. He's talking about the kingdom of God. He's implying that there will be regime change. He's approachable on a human level. His death could only be described as a conspiracy of the highest order. He said that the Holy Spirit would descend and convince the world that he was innocent. Accusations are plentiful. But who is ultimately responsible? Much research of the historical Jesus has focused on this question of who was responsible for Jesus' death. By whose hand did the founder of the world's largest religion suffer and die? The Matcast proudly presents a limited podcast series with an investigation of scripture and experts, all in an effort to answer one question. Who killed Jesus? Thank you for joining us for our fifth and final episode of Who Killed Jesus? My name is Matt Anderson. I suppose all of us spend our lives attempting to have a greater understanding of God. Part of that journey is realizing places in which we have misconceptions and misperceptions about Him. I am sure that will occur in my life until I leave this place to be with Him forever. Still, and I have to admit, rather more frequently than I wish to admit, I find myself corrected by scripture and wise counsel 
as to things I have misunderstood about the Lord or Scripture. One of the biggest realizations I ever had was gaining a handle on just how God operates. You see, I think to fully understand the implications of who killed Jesus, we need to zoom out and have a much deeper understanding of the operation and motivation of God himself. And it all goes back to Eden. One of the greatest yet hardest truths to understand in our finite carnal minds is that everything God does involves love and joy. His act of creating human life and all that we see should be seen as an act of joy. Dallas Willard elaborates. Creation was an act of joy, of delight in the goodness of what was done. And actually for human beings, very often their most joyous moment is a creative moment. And uh, when they look back on it, they, they see the radiance of that moment. Whether it's just working on an automobile or painting something or whatever it may be. It's the act of creation. Um, and you want to go back and look at it over and over again. Uh, I'm not much of a carpenter or anything else, but when I build something, uh, I tend to go back and look at it pretty often. <laughs> And it's the creative, the creative aspect that goes with the love of God in creating. It is difficult for us to see God in such a light. Our sinful hearts feel much more comfortable seeing him as a grumpy old cuss who hates dealing with us and is in a constant state of disappointment. But our infractions do not injure the joy of God because he sees all and knows all. If you are a parent, do you spend every minute of every day thinking of your child in the harshest possible terms? Of course not. Yet we often believe the worst of our God, that he looks at us with total contempt. And if you listen to episode four, of this series in which we spoke of the wrath of God being exhausted upon Jesus on the cross because of us, you may even be wondering if this is a contradiction. But my friend, God looks on sin with complete contempt. Much like an oncologist looks at cancer with complete and utter distaste and contempt because she knows the damage that it does to the body. God looks upon our sin with complete contempt because he sees what it does to the heart, the soul, and the mind. He looks on you with a complete love and devotion that we will never be able to remotely understand. He puts every parent to shame in his extravagant love. Everything he does he does out of divine love and joy. God is never out of control. He holds all things together and joyously so. His operating system 
is love. Everything is plan A. Possibly the most famous verse in the Bible reminds us, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son. Love was God's motivation in creation and redemption. There was always something grander and greater at work in the death of Jesus, so much bigger than Pharisees, governors, and Roman soldiers. Jesus gave a preview of this in John chapter 10 when he said, I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. For this reason, the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. Hear those words one more time. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. To firmly answer our title question of this series, no one killed Jesus because no one can. Jesus willingly lays his life down out of love and joy. As Paul says in Philippians 2, he became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Nothing happens without his approval and consent. Nobody takes his life because he is God. He is never out of control. This is plan A. All of it was out of love. And yes, even his cruel death was out of joy. Hebrews 12, 1 and 2. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Yes, Jesus, in his humanity, was praying intensely in the Garden of Gethsemane in anticipation of drinking the cup of God's wrath. But what allowed him to do so was the joy that awaited on the other side, knowing that his children would be freed forever. He was filled with a hope and anticipation 
that took him through all the trials and tests of Calvary. Jesus even shows his love and friendship for us by his position on the cross itself. Here is Tim Keller. Meditate on Jesus' death as an act of friendship. Uh, Derek Kidner, my favorite commentator of the Psalms and the Proverbs, he wrote the Tyndale Commentaries on Psalms and Proverbs many years ago, Proverbs. Uh, he defines friendship. Now he's talking, when the Bible talks about friendship, he defines it at one point as candor and constancy. Candor means vulnerability, openness, transparency. Constancy means commitment, sticking with you. There is a friend that sticketh closer than a brother. So, constance, uh, excuse me, candor and constancy means friends always let you in, never let you down. Always have time for you, always open their hearts, but never let you down. Well, take a look at Jesus Christ on the cross. You know, I don't remember much from my college boxing class, but I do remember they said, never have your hands at your sides. Never have your hands out like this. Always have your hands like this. Always, always, always put your hands in front of you. Never put your hands to your side. Jesus Christ not only put his hands to his side, his hands were nailed out there. How much more vulnerable could he be? He made himself absolutely vulnerable to you. He let you all the way in. And of course, he never let, he didn't let you down. He had all of hell coming down on him. And yet he said, not my will, but thine be done. Romans 5, 6. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person. Though perhaps for a good person, one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Plan A has been all about getting us back. In spite of our determination to be God and send ourselves into complete destruction, his plan was to lovingly win us, free us, and bring us back into reconciliation. On the day of Pentecost, Peter, under the anointing of the Holy Spirit, tells the assembled crowd in Acts 2.22, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. 
Did you catch that? Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan. Plan A, the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. Ultimately, the love and joy of God shows its mastery over death itself with the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ. Matthew 28, 1. Now after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning, and his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he has risen. As he said, Come, see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. And behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you. As we just saw in Acts 2, Jesus loosed the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. The resurrection is the most victorious aspect of the Jesus story and consequently the most controversial. For it's one thing to speak of the death of the one you worship. There have been countless martyrs for millions of causes over the span of human history. Many hold those in high honor for their life and their works. But Christianity makes the biggest claim of all. Not only did our Savior die, but he rose again. Dr. Ted Cable explains why our belief in the resurrection is so important. If he's not raised from the dead, then Christianity is silly. There's no forgiveness for our sins. My having lived my life believing that he's raised from the dead was a waste. I could have lived it any other of a number of ways. But if he is raised from the dead, then in fact, the hundreds of millions of people who've trusted in him through the centuries really do have hope for eternal life. Paul puts it this way in 1 Corinthians 15, 13. But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ whom he did not raise, if it is true, that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. For this reason, the resurrection of Jesus is probably the most opposed part of our Savior's story. Think of the ramifications. As we already said, if Jesus wasn't resurrected, we have all been wasting our time. But if he was, 
if he is, then he truly is God. And all of humankind must now decide whether or not to believe in him. So the unbeliever and the skeptic all must attack the resurrection of Jesus in order to dismiss him. This has been in place from the outset of Christianity. It was the preaching of the resurrection that brought about the most trouble on the early apostles. Acts 4, 1. And as they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. The Apostle Paul, in all of his opposition, tells us the root of each of them. Here is John Piper. Four times in the book of Acts, Paul puts in one sentence why he winds up on trial and in prison over and over and over. And I'll read them to you. Before the Jews in Jerusalem, Acts 23, it is for the hope of the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial. Before Felix in Caesarea, it is with respect to the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial before you this day. Before King Agrippa, why is it thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? Before the Jews in Rome at the very end of his life, it is because of the hope of Israel that I am wearing this chain. But there are proofs, scriptural and historical, that help prove the resurrection of Jesus. Again, Dr. Ted Cable. Such as, well, his body was stolen, or maybe he wasn't really dead when he was put in the tomb and so on, have been responded to powerfully such that I'm convinced today the very best answer is in fact rationally that Jesus was historically raised from the dead. Now some of the actual historical evidences that have been discussed through the centuries are that Jesus was really dead. That is to say, there's no question that he just swooned when he was put into the tomb. The Romans knew how to kill you when they crucified you. Two, the fact is that his tomb was empty. The early Christians even lost where the actual tomb is. We don't know for sure even where you're taken as a tourist today is actually where he was buried. Why? Because they didn't care about it. He was raised from the dead. His enemies would have presented his body were he actually still in the tomb. Three, his disciples believed that they were seeing Jesus after his resurrection, that is in a post-mortem raised state, so much so that they were willing to die for this. This is remarkable. And in fact, they changed for their belief system. These early believers were Jewish, and so they began to worship on the first day of the week, that is Sunday, instead of uh, the Sabbath day. They, had, they celebrated the Lord's Supper, which is a proclamation of his death and burial and resurrection until he comes, and baptism, which was a symbol of buried with him in the likeness of his death and raised in the likeness of his resurrection. Dr. Gary Habermas gives us further proofs of the resurrection. 
Jesus died by crucifixion. His disciples had experiences that they believed were appearances of the risen Jesus. Because of their belief that he was raised, it is the event that has turned the world upside down religiously. In fact, a recent book on non-believing Jews and the resurrection, they even acknowledged, not being Christians, that Christianity is a resurrection religion. It was the resurrection that powered the religion, uh, to power the teachings, even to the point of being willing to die. Uh, and we do have first century sources for the, the arguably the three largest names in Christianity. Uh, four, very important, it was proclaimed very early. And today, critics, the, the consensus position is that you can track the resurrection preaching back to immediately after the cross. In fact, the way it's often stated by, say, Bart Ehrman, is that when Paul said yes to Jesus on the way to, to Damascus, there was already a body of data called the early creeds that are later written in the New Testament, but they were already being noised abroad. When Paul said yes, there were these heavy creeds, about 80% of which are in the deity, death, resurrection of Jesus, because that's a major message. They were already in existence. So when Paul, Paul didn't invent Christianity, the main reason, when he came to Christ, the message he hated most, we already have data from that, that two-year period before Paul. And then the last two would be individuals, James, the brother of Jesus, and Paul, both of whom become Christians because they believed they had experiences, which were appearances of the risen Jesus. All of this leads theologian N.T. Wright to come to a very important conclusion. As a historian, I am forced to say when I look at the rise of early Christianity and why it took the shape it did, there are all sorts of things which make me say, I cannot actually explain how Christianity got going as a, a, a renewal movement in Judaism in the first century and why it took this specific shape unless they really all did believe that Jesus was really bodily raised from the dead. And when you say, but why would they believe that? Could this have been a corporate hallucination or whatever? You can look at those arguments, and I've looked at them and I've written about them, and actually that doesn't work either. They knew about hallucinations. They knew about ghosts. They knew about odd wacky experiences. There's plenty of literature about that in the ancient world. And, and they, they weren't so stupid as just to go wafting off on some idea like that. This was a very definite thing. He really has been raised from the dead. And that was why they did and said what they did. Jesus is raised and Jesus is alive. And we must remember that it was all plan A. God lovingly and joyfully carried out his plan, including and probably especially his resurrection. And upon his resurrection, Jesus brings his joy to those who desperately need it the most. Trevor Hudson expresses an interesting recurring theme in the resurrected life of Jesus. Have you noticed that each person to whom the risen Jesus comes, each person is in a place of struggle and difficulty and grief and loss. Have you noticed that? Mary is crying in the garden. Uh, she's in grief. She's lost the person who loved her back to life. 
the two uh, Emmaus pilgrims, we are told their faces are downcast. And they are saying to each other, we had hoped that he was going to be the one who was going to liberate Israel. The disciples are locked behind closed doors because they are frightened and fearful. Thomas is battling with a doubt that verges on unbelief. The disciples uh, who are out fishing have caught nothing. Peter is wrestling with his deep feelings of failure and remorse and regret. Each person to whom Christ comes is in a difficult space. Today, we all can have supreme joy because Christ is alive. And he comes to us in our brokenness and hurt and pain and offers us a life that rises above the cares of this world, a life that can only be found in him. Romans 5 from the message. You know the story of how Adam landed us in the dilemma we're in. First sin, then death and no one exempt from either sin or death. That sin disturbed relations with God in everything and everyone, but the extent of the disturbance was not clear until God spelled it out in detail to Moses. So death, this huge abyss separating us from God, dominated the landscape from Adam to Moses. Even those who didn't sin precisely as Adam did by disobeying a specific command of God still had to experience this termination of life, this separation from God. But Adam, who got us into this, also points ahead to the one who will get us out of it. Yet the rescuing gift is not exactly parallel to the death-dealing sin. If one man's sin put crowds of people at the dead-end abyss of separation from God, just think what God's gift poured through one man, Jesus Christ, will do. There's no comparison between that death-dealing sin and this generous, life-giving gift. The verdict on that one sin was the death sentence. The verdict on the many sins that followed was this wonderful life sentence. If death got the upper hand through one man's wrongdoing, can you imagine the breathtaking recovery life makes, absolute life, in those who grasp with both hands this wildly extravagant life gift, this grand setting everything right, that the one man Jesus Christ provides? Here it is in a nutshell. Just as one person did it wrong and got us in all this trouble with sin and death, another person did it right and got us out of it. But more than just getting us out of trouble, he got us into life. One man said no to God and put many people in the wrong. One man said yes to God and put many in the right. 
All that passing laws against sin did was produce more lawbreakers. But sin didn't and doesn't have a chance in competition with the aggressive forgiveness we call grace. When it's sin versus grace, grace wins hands down. All sin can do is threaten us with death, and that's the end of it. Grace, because God is putting everything together again through the Messiah, invites us into life, a life that goes on and on and on, world without end. Jesus desires to raise us to new life as we believe by faith in him. Now, in my mind, that would be enough, but it isn't for the Lord. Plan A has a magnificent finish. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul writes, I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. This is plan A, the one plan. And it hasn't changed since before the foundation of the world. If you already know Jesus, would you offer praise and thanks to him that he made you the centerpiece of his love and joy? And this Resurrection Sunday be reminded of that? And that because he lives, you shall live also. If you don't know Jesus, I hope it is abundantly clear that he wants you as you are. Just believe this by faith and new life begins. I don't know if I've ever done this before on this podcast, but if you desire to receive Jesus today and live for him forever, can I just lead you in a prayer? Jesus, today I admit that my life is a mess. I have made it so. I can't fix it. I have tried to be God and I have failed miserably. I have sinned. I have hurt myself and others. But today I recognize you did for me what I could never do for myself. 
I need you to save me, to rescue me, to forgive me, to give me a new life, to take control over my life so that I may live with you and for you forever. I dedicate my life to you from this moment forward. In Christ's name, amen. You've been listening to Who Killed Jesus, a MacCast limited series and a production of Monumental Ministries. For more information or to listen to our archives, go to mattministry.com. Thanks for listening. <laughs>